Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So one thing you should know about me is um, I currently I pastor a Baptist church, uh, but I went to a Presbyterian seminary, but I was raised in the charismatic church. So that means I'm fueled by like amens and things like that. So uh, the amount of amens and the feedback you give me will be a directly better sermon uh, for all of, the, all of those of you who want to know that. So I'm really grateful to be here. It's good to see a few familiar faces in the house and people I've known over the years. Uh, Pastor Chris uh, has preached for me twice at Sound City Bible Church. I'm really grateful for him and his friendship. And uh, he, I, I was on a sabbatical, a three-month-long pastoral sabbatical last year. I know how incredibly important that time was for me, just for a spiritual recharging, uh, an opportunity to rest. Uh, the last few years, without trying to sound overly dramatic, have been very difficult for pastors. I know it's been very difficult for a lot of people, but um, pastoral ministry is a unique combination of relational contexts all blended into one. And the last few years, all the difficulties have made it just very hard at times to know which way is up and which way is down. So I've been regularly praying for Chris, and it's my honor to get to fill in for him here and to be able to teach God's Word. I figured when he filled in for me when I was on sabbatical and he asked if I would fill in for him on sabbatical, it would be pretty hypocritical to say no. So here I am today. A little bit about me so that you can know just kind of who I am and where I'm coming from. I was born and raised in the great state of Alaska. My wife uh, and I met in high school, and she's from the Seattle area. And so uh, after we had been married for a while, we felt the Lord calling us to move to Seattle for what I thought would just be a, a short period of time. By the way, my wife's name is also Aaron. That's how bad I am with names. I had to marry a woman with the same name as me, so I'd make sure to always get that one right. And we have four daughters together, uh, four girls. And I always just say, God knew how many women it would take in the house to balance out this much manliness. So, all right, so it's a joke. You're okay to laugh at that. But yeah, my wife and I, we moved to Seattle in 2011. We thought we'd be here for a short period of time and move back to Alaska and plant a church there. But the Lord had other plans. And through a series of twists and turns, we ended up planting Sound City Bible Church in 2015, where I have the privilege of serving as lead pastor there, and I'm really grateful. I'm really grateful for Pastor Chris and, uh, and, and for Tara and our, our relationship with them, and here's our relationship recently leveled up. My wife and I went out on a double date with the Riches a few weeks ago to see the new Top Gun movie, so I feel like our relationship has kind of leveled up. That's a, that's a special thing to be able to see there, and uh, Chris is a few years older than me, but in that movie theater, he was like 13 years old. Again, it was hilarious to watch. So anyways, uh, I want to share with you today from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to Luke 24. We'll be in Luke, and we're going to jump around in Luke 24 a little bit, and we're also going to be putting our fingers in Luke 24 and skipping back to Isaiah a little bit. But today, I would like to just share with you a word of hope, even as we heard in our, our call to worship verse this morning, that the Lord would be our hope. And so I hope to uh, be able to share with you the hope of Jesus Christ and the gospel today. So before we do anything else, would you, would you pray with me? Lord, we acknowledge that your presence is here with us right now. Lord, I confess in my own flesh I am tempted at times to envision you as being far off and distant. But Lord, you are present with us right here and right now. And Lord, I don't know many people in this room, but Lord, I know that many of us 
come in today with various burdens, worries, concerns, frustrations. These things weigh heavy on our hearts. They distract our minds. Lord, we even feel it at times in our bodies. And so we want to bring all of who we are right now before you. Lord, I ask and I pray that you would minister to us your hope through the message of the gospel, the work of Jesus, and through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Lord, for myself, would you guard my words, guide my speech, and I would only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. And Lord, for each one of us today, would we draw closer to you as a result of our time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's start with a little bit of bad news. And the bad news is that virtually every public expert is telling us some version of the same thing, that hope for the future is an all-time low right now. I don't have to bore you with a bunch of statistics, but most everyone is saying virtually the same thing. I read a report just the other day that the levels of anxiety and depression jumped 25% in one calendar year over the course of 2020 going into 2021. There's something I've learned about recently, which I don't, admittedly, I don't know very much about, but something that public experts will call the misery index, which is, boy, what a fun job to have to study the misery index. They're saying that the misery index is at, uh, you know, an all-time high in generations. And there's many practical reasons, right? Obviously, these last few years, whether it's been COVID or, uh, 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 you know, political tensions or the war in Ukraine or inflation or doesn't it just feel like we just had an election and now we're going to have another election and you're looking forward to you know trying to ignore those topics with your coworkers or family members it's just everything has been so filled with bad news and many people many people are really struggling again i said i'm starting with some bad news i i i officiated a funeral yesterday for a teenage boy who was the victim of gun violence in the Linwood area and talking with his mother and talking with other family members and just some of the things that uh, teenagers are facing right now, just the hopelessness. Now you could point to the practical reasons, right? Economics, politics, uh, racism, racial tensions, whatever it might be, whatever the thing out there that it might be. But for me, As a pastor and even just as a follower of Jesus, I'm convinced that one of the things that is really pushing us in this direction is the lack of hope. The lack of hope. Hope, Hope's an interesting thing, right? Hope is inherently future-oriented. And I am by just my own personality type. I tend to be a very future-oriented person. I can be, um, uh, my wife will sometimes make fun of me because sometimes I'll pick up a conversation midway through that I've already started with her and I'll jump into like the third or the fourth sentence and she's like, I feel like you skipped ahead. Like it's like when you're watching a movie and you accidentally click, you know, like the 30 seconds ahead button or something like that. And she's like, where are you? I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm, I, was, I was in the future. I need to back up and bring you along with me to where we were in the conversation. I am kind of by nature just a future-oriented person. I'm by nature a hope full person, an optimistic type of person. And hope is something, even if you don't have the same kind of person, that's not a, that's not a character thing, by the way. That's not a right or a wrong thing. That's just kind of how I'm wired. But every person, even if you're not wired like me, every person needs 
hope for the future. Every single human being needs to have a picture or a vision for the future. It's something that fuels us as human beings. Now, sometimes our hope is grounded in reality, right? You could say, I hope that this you know, whatever recession we might be in, I hope it doesn't last too terribly long. And you can say, yes, there's hope. It's grounded in reality because virtually every financial recession that America's ever gone through, you a few years of hardship and then you come out on the other side stronger. Sometimes, though, our hope is grounded in a delusion. Something like, you know, I hope the Seattle Mariners make the playoffs this year. By the way, our nation, the United States of America, was really deeply founded in a season of hope. It's the water we swim in. It's the air we breathe, right? Uh, 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 The idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We're going to establish a nation so everyone can pursue happinesses, or or even quotes that have have made their way into our our culture. You know, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., the, the arc of human history bends towards justice. It's a very hopeful view of reality. I even think about the commercials that were on the TV a few years uh, ago called, it was just this campaign called, It Gets Better. And I remember looking at the TV and thinking, says who? Now, Proverbs 13 tells us that when we have hopes, and those hopes get delayed, those hopes get thwarted, those hopes get deferred, Proverbs 13 says it makes our hearts what? Sick. Quick show of hands. For those of you who are in the room, and if you happen to be watching on a live stream, uh, you have to also raise your hand at home. How many of you in the, in the last few years have had your hopes set on something and then found those hopes disappointed? Anybody? Almost all of us. And yes, I can see you at home too. Good job. So where do we find our hope? Where do we ground our hope? Is our hope kind of in just a wishful thinking and it gets better sort of a hope? Is it a, is it a I'm just going to have belief and optimism? Or is there something for us as followers of Jesus where we could have true hope? Let's pick up in Luke 24, starting in verse 17. And this is a story about some people who have had their hopes extremely dashed and how Jesus reorients their hope. Luke 24, verse 17. You may know this story. This is known as the disciples on the road to Emmaus. This is, this is the Sunday after Jesus had been crucified. There's a pair of disciples walking down the road together, and all of a sudden, Jesus, though they don't know it's him, he appears to them. Luke 24, verse 17. So then he, Jesus, asked them, what's this dispute Excuse me, that you're having with each other as you're walking? And as they stopped walking, they looked discouraged. So one of the disciples named Cleopas answered him, Listen, buddy, are you the only guy in Jerusalem who doesn't know what has taken place here these last few days? (laughs) What things? Jesus asked them. Don't you just love that there seems to be a little part of Jesus' personality where he loves to just kind of mess with people? What are you talking about, guys? I love that. So they said to him, these things concerning Jesus of Nazareth. He he was a powerful prophet in action and in speech. He didn't just teach. He had the actions, the miracles to back it up. Uh, Before God and before all the people and how our chief priests, our religious leaders, 
They handed him over to the Romans to be sentenced to death, and, and they crucified him. But here it is. We were hoping that he might be the one who was about to redeem Israel. By the way, quick side note, uh, one of the disciples here is named Cleopas. The other disciple is never named, and scholars kind of go back and forth on who they think it might be. Uh, the most common idea is that many scholars think it's actually Luke, the author of this gospel himself, that he didn't want to be self-referential. He didn't want to mention himself by name, but he's, he's one of the disciples walking along with Cleopas. Um, it's some would say that it might actually be the wife of Cleopas, a woman named Mary, and she's mentioned in John chapter 19. It's not one of the regular Marys, Mary the mother of Jesus or Mary Magdalene. And some scholars point out that it might be the wife of Cleopas because it says they were on a road trip and they were fighting. So take that for what it's worth. Either way, that's a true, there are scholars who say that, but either way, these are two very devoutly Jewish people. These are devout followers of the God of Israel, and they had a lot of hope for their people. They had a lot of hope for their nation. If you'll allow me, let me just kind of back up and, and, and summarize what has led to this moment, this one moment of such dashed hopes. Because if you've read the, the Hebrew Bible, if you've read the, the, the 39 books of the Old Testament, you know that at the very beginning, God creates everything good. Everything he made is good, and the hope is that Adam and Eve are going to expand the goodness of God out from this garden in the land of Eden out to the whole world. What does God tell Adam and Eve? He says, he says go into all the world, be fruitful and multiply. He says, subdue it. That God made all things good, but there's work to be done of bringing all things under the submission of God. And so there's the, the, the first chapters, the first two chapters of the Bible are filled with all this hope oh, wow, God created a world and he's made these people and they're going to go out and they're going to expand God's glory, his rule, his, his dominion, his kingship. But we can see right in the third chapter of the Bible that humanity chooses selfishness, that Adam and Eve decide to live life on their own terms, to not listen to the word of the Lord, to not follow what it is that he said was to be done. They chose their own hope to hope to be like God, which is such an ironic thing because we know that Adam and Eve were already created in the image and likeness of God. And so, all of the world is plunged into chaos, into sin, into death. But God chooses one family, the family of Abraham. He, he makes his promise to a man named Abraham and, and to Abraham's wife, Sarah, and he says, through you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use your descendants to be a blessing to all of the people groups on planet Earth. This hope for the family of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the, the, the family of Israel, and, and God, uh, even after these people become enslaved in Egypt, he redeems them out of Egypt, and he sets them on a, on a hill, he puts them into the promised land, and here it is, the, the people of Israel, God's, God's creation and, 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 and uh, dominion project is going to get restarted with the people of Israel, but the problem is, is have you ever read the Old Testament? God's people become corrupt as well. Just yesterday in my personal reading, I just finished a read-through of all the minor prophets. Um, if you ever just want to do a study on total depravity, just read the minor prophets. 
No one is following Yahweh. No one is doing what they're supposed to do. No one is living up to their calling from the Lord. And the minor prophets, are their hopes are dashed. They're, they're frustrated. There's warnings. There's, there's judgment that's coming. You're not, you're not doing what you were created to do. And if you read the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, you know that eventually the people of Israel, the consequences for their sinfulness was they were removed from the land people of the northern tribes of Israel by Assyria, the southern tribes of Judah by Babylon, they go into exile. And there's this deep hope that they're going to get to return to the land. And eventually God, in His mercy, does return them to the land. But you know, things weren't very good even when they got to go back to the promised land. They were living under rule from Persia, and then eventually Greece conquered Persia and took over, and then who, who was ruling over Israel in the time of the earthly life and ministry of Jesus? Who, what empire? I already said it. Rome. It's not a trick question. Good job. You're doing it. Rome. And, and they're, they're home, but they're not really f- f- home. It's like if you've ever moved, and it's like you're in your house, but everything is just boxes everywhere. It's, it's like that, but a but hundred times worse because they don't have the freedom to worship God and to follow God and to honor God as they wanted. And so throughout this period of time, both around the exile and in the return from exile, there's a hope for a promised redeemer a promised deliverer, an anointed one, a a Messiah, somebody who was going to show up and really set things right. The prophet Isaiah says things like, "When, when when this redeemer, when this rescuer shows up, Isaiah says that he's going to judge the nations. I don't know about you, but the the judge the nations verses have resonated more with me in recent times than they ever have before the Lord would just set things right. Or Isaiah said, when this Messiah shows up, when this Redeemer shows up, he, he, uh, blind people are going to start seeing again. And people who can't walk are going to start leaping around like a deer. The prophet Zechariah, I just read three days ago, he says, when, when this king shows up, he's not going to be like the other kings. He's going to be a humble king who rides in on a donkey. He's not here to crush you under his, under his heel. He's, he's here to to be a servant sort of king. And so Jesus shows up. And Jesus goes about intentionally triggering all of these hopes. What happens when Jesus starts showing up? Do blind people start seeing? Do deaf people start hearing? Do lame people start walking? You better believe it. Read the Gospels. Read what Matthew and Mark and Luke and and even John write about Jesus and his miracles. And and Jesus, the humble king, he goes and tells his disciples, go find me a donkey. I'm going to ride into town on a donkey. I mean, he is is intentionally triggering all of these hopes for the people of Israel. There's this fever pitch. There's There's this heightened expectation. There's this hope for the future. Finally, the guy we've been waiting for showed up and he's going to do something about our predicament. Hope was at an all-time high. And then what happened? What happened? Jesus rides into Jerusalem. The crowds are there. One of Jesus' disciples goes and conspires with the Jewish leaders, and they go and arrest Jesus. And they bring him before a Roman governor, a tribunal, kind of a, kind of a kangaroo courts of sorts where they bring forward false witnesses and the the Jewish people accuse him of not just breaking religious laws but actually causing a sedition and so the Roman governor's 
give in to the pressure of the people and say, well, let's, let's have him put to death. We just sang about it. Nailed to a cross. The most humiliating, the most terrorizing form of, of death and execution that the world has ever known. So there you are. You're one of those people. You, you, you had your hopes set on Jesus. You're Cleopas or you're this other disciple. You had your hopes set that finally things are going to get back to the way they used to be, back when David and when Solomon ruled, and finally our people are going to be set free from this Roman oppression, and finally people are going to be faithful to the one true God of Israel, and then you're sitting there, you're looking at him, naked, bleeding, breathing his last. Talk about some dashed hopes. And he writes, a, a New Testament scholar, he writes this, he says, they had hoped that Israel would be redeemed, that, that God would purchase her freedom. They'd hoped that Israel would be liberated once for all from pagan domination, free to serve God in peace and holiness. That's why the crucifixion was so devastating. It wasn't just that Jesus had been the bearer of their hopes and now he was dead and gone. It was sharper than that. It's worse than that. If Jesus had been the one to redeem Israel, he should have been defeating the pagans, not dying at their hands. A minute ago, y'all raised your hands about feeling some sense of hopelessness or disappointment at some point. If you can just tap into that a little bit right now to, to identify with these disciples, but you know, multiply it times a thousand. Whatever economic hopes you may have had, whatever relationship hopes you may have had, whatever political hopes you may have had, bundle it all together, ratchet it up. That's what these disciples are feeling. When Jesus died, Luke tells us, if you go to the previous chapter, Luke 23, verse 48, it says, all the crowds that had gathered for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they went home, striking their chests. But all who knew him including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance, watching these things. Why were they sad? Well, they were sad because they had their hopes set on a particular vision of what their redemption was going to look like. See, they, you know, many of these people, good, religious, observant Jews, they've been reading prophets like Isaiah. If you've ever read Isaiah, maybe you've come across in the later chapters, Isaiah 52, where there's this promise of when the Messiah shows up. It says this, it says, be, be joyful. Chapter 52, verse 9 of Isaiah, be joyful and rejoice together, you ruins of Jerusalem. Look, Jerusalem, you've been through hard times. But the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has displayed his holy arm in the sight of the nations. All the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. How is this going to happen? How are the nations going to see? How are we going to get back to our hope? Verse 13, the prophet Isaiah says, see my servant, speaking on behalf of God, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. That's pretty hopeful, is it not? Sounds pretty good. All right. I know Jerusalem's been a wreck, but there's a servant coming. There's this redeemer coming. 
He's going to be lifted up. Oh, good, that means he's going to be the king. He's going to be the ruler. He'll be highly exalted, and, and he's going to be very successful. And all the other nations are going to see it. Ha <laughs> ha, in your face, Babylon, in your face, Persia. In your, it's like the, the World Cup coming to Seattle uh, next year, right? Like, just all the nations are going to see the United States will win the World Cup. That's also a false hope. But anyways, it's this optimism. There's this hope. And, and, and boy, I, I, maybe it's just me, but I really relate to this. This idea of kind of picking out these types of verses and really latching onto them. Like I said, I'm a very hopeful person. Maybe you're a cynical person. Different sermon, different Sunday. We'll find something for you. But see, the problem is, is that these people were reading passages like Isaiah 52, but maybe they skipped over Isaiah 53, where the same prophet in the same section of Scripture says, yes, but he's pierced because of our rebellion. He's crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was upon him, and we are healed by his wounds. We, see, we all went astray. Who, who went astray, church? Who went astray? We all went astray. Oh, you mean it's, it's not just Babylon, it's not just Persia, it's not just Rome, it's not just those other nations, it's not just those bad guys who are out there doing wrong? You mean we all have done wrong? We've all gone astray like sheep? We've all turned to our own way? And the Lord has punished us? No. The Lord is actually going to punish this servant for our iniquity. He, the servant, was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. Not Persia, not Babylon, not Greece, not Rome. Israel's rebellion. And yet, the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. Friends, I'll just remind you at this moment here that it's not just those people, whoever they may be, who deserve the righteous judgment of God. It's you and it's me. Raise your hand if you, like a sheep, have ever wandered astray from the ways of God. And again, I can confess to you, sometimes I can get fixated on, Lord, would you fix those people? Would you, would you deal with those people? And yet, the Lord says, I want to actually fix you. You think the problem's out there, but there's a deeper problem in here. See, the people of this day, the people of Jesus' day, were hoping for a Redeemer who was going to show up and he was going to judge Rome. He was going to kick them out and deal with their wickedness. But what God was saying is the Redeemer is going to actually show up and he's going to deal with the, the emperor that lives in here. And I think it's worth noting that sometimes the thing that we hope for is not actually a thing we really need. Sometimes the thing we hope for is not what we actually need. And here's the problem, too. 
I mentioned maybe, maybe I, I'm speculating a little bit here, but maybe these people had been reading Isaiah. Maybe they skipped over some of these sections because they didn't want to think about the suffering servant. Maybe they just wanted to think about the victorious servant. But the problem is, is when your hope is misdirected, you not only miss out on what God is doing, you miss out on some of the biggest hope of all. Because Isaiah 53 goes on, not just the victorious servant, not just the suffering servant, but the resurrected servant. He says this, the prophet Isaiah says, when, when you make this servant a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by his hands the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Friends, there's a hope of resurrection in these verses. It's not just that the servant is going to show up and suffer. It's that on the other side of his suffering, the Lord will vindicate him. God's got something really, really good on the other side of the hardship that is promised in Isaiah 53. And again, this is what is exactly happening on that Sunday morning. Let's go back to Luke 24. Enough background. I just kind of summarized the entire Old Testament with a focus on Isaiah. I apologize. It's what I like to do. Luke 24. Go back to verse 1. It says, on the very first day of the week, very early in the morning, this is a Sunday morning, they, these, these women, came to the tomb bringing the spices they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb and they went in, but they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And so they're perplexed about this. Would you be perplexed about this? Yes. The answer is yes. What in the world? Where's the body? Suddenly, two men stood by them in dazzling bright clothes. So the women were terrified and they bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Asked the men. They're angels. Uh, he is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying, it is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day. And they remembered his words. So these women get to have this experience of the tomb is empty. Something crazy is happening here. Something unexpected is happening. We had hoped that he was going to defeat Rome. Now we have had our hopes crushed because we saw him crucified. What is happening now? Do we dare have some even greater hope? So these women, they're the first witnesses to the resurrection. They, they rush back and they go tell the other 11 disciples. Judas has, has, has killed himself at this point. So the remaining 11 disciples, they go. And then we get back to our road trip. Okay, let's pick all the way back up to our road trip. Verse 21. Again, these disciples, Cleopas and the other person, we were hoping that Jesus was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides this, it's the third day since these things happened, and moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. They didn't trust the word of the, the ladies. Now he, Jesus, said to them, who at this point they think is still a stranger. So he leads with this line, how foolish you are <laughs> and how slow to believe all that the prophets, prophets like Isaiah, have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah, this, this promised one, wasn't it necessary for him to suffer? 
Weren't you reading Isaiah? Weren't you paying attention to what the prophet said had to happen? And then enter into his glory? So then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, all of them, including Isaiah, all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. That's a good road trip podcast right there. Jesus unpacking everything in the Bible, leading to the message of the suffering and the glorification of the Messiah. So then they came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going farther, but they urged him, hey, stay with us. You're, you're, you're doing a great job teaching us the Bible. But they also said, hey, it's almost evening, and now the day's almost over, and you don't want to be out at nighttime. And so he went in to stay with them, and it was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, he blessed and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. Then they said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? That very hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those with them gathered together who said, the Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. And then they began to describe what had happened to them on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. The ultimate hope of these first followers of Jesus was not in a temporal, earthly, political victory, but the ultimate hope of these first followers of Jesus was in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the defeat of sin, and the defeat of death itself. And friends, the invitation to us today is to put our deepest hope in that same thing, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. There is no greater hope. The Apostle Paul, later reflecting on this in 1 Corinthians 15, says, if, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. And, and those who have fallen asleep in Christ, well, they're just gone. They've perished. But if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. Question, is there benefits in this life to following Jesus? Not a trick question. Yes, absolutely. I believe that in many ways, following Jesus will make your life in this lifetime better. But Paul says there's so much more than that. The message is not just, oh, be a good person, live a good life, raise a good family, have a good marriage. Those things are all well and good, but if that's all you care about, then you ought to be pitied. And in fact, this whole thing that you're doing right now is a gigantic waste of time. But as it is, Paul says, Christ has been raised from the dead. Praise God. The first fruits, oh, that's an important word, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits means more to come. That the hope is Jesus has raised from the dead. And if Jesus has raised from the dead, then one day I too will be raised from the dead. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. Friends, I, I've, I was blessed and fortunate to be raised in a home where the Bible was open, Jesus was worshipped. We were in church every Sunday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Monday, and Tuesday, right? And every once in a while, I just kind of back out and you think about this idea of what, what I'm standing here claiming to you. 
that this king, this leader, this Messiah guy showed up. They put him to death, but he did not stay dead. The message of the Christian gospel is not, we we don't follow a, a dry book of rules or a dead religious founder. We serve a crucified and risen king. He's alive forevermore. And at the end of the day, my hope is not in whatever temporal circumstances, things in this life. At the end of the day, my hope is that I, like Jesus, will be raised from the dead and I will live in a new heavens and a new earth with him in glory for eternity. That's a good hope, amen? That's a good hope, amen? That's a good hope. The hope that Jesus offers us is better than any other hope. And if you'll allow me to just apply this to our lives for just a moment here. Death is very present to me right now. Uh, Last last Sunday, I received a text from my mom that her mom, my grandmother, passed away and went to be in the arms of Jesus. Just the beginning of this year, she was traveling, playing bridge, bridge, hanging out with a new boyfriend that she's been seeing after my grandpa passed away, which is a weird experience to have your grandma in her 80s dating again. My dad had made a joke earlier this year, she's going to outlive all of us, and then brain tumors. It was a very quick and sudden decline. I got to go see her a few weeks ago before she passed, and we got to pray together and got to reminisce on some stories. But I remember leaving my parents' house like, that's probably the last time I'm ever going to see her. And then I remembered, oh wait, no it's not. Because she's put her hope in Jesus. I mentioned yesterday I did a funeral for a a, a young man, a teenage boy, hanging around with some wrong people, wrong place, wrong time. But I talked to a guy who was a mentor of his and he told me that on a recent drive just a few months ago that this young man had told him, I believe in Jesus, I trust in Jesus, I don't know why I'm hanging out with these people. I know I need to do some things different. and So I'm able to offer some hope. I, I don't know what you're hoping for right now. Uh, this is not my church home. You're not my direct, immediate church family. We're extended family. So maybe I can meddle for a few minutes and then I get to leave and, and uh, your pastors get to deal with it. But wh- where are your hopes? What is it that you have been hoping for? Is your hope economic? You're really thinking about money a lot right now and you're hoping for money or you're hoping for gas prices to go down or you're hoping for the stock market to rebound. Or you're hoping there's Some of you, you, you care deeply about money. And I'm not saying that that's a wrong thing in and of itself. But is that your deepest hope? How, how much does it upset you when finances don't go the way that you want? Some of you, maybe your hope is really political. You really are really hoping for certain politicians or certain legislation to be passed by Congress or certain rulings to come from the Supreme Court, and that will fix everything. There's my hope. I really am hoping in American politics. Friends, I hate to say it to you, but nations come and nations go. There will be a day when the United States of America doesn't exist anymore that the kingdom and the word of our Lord will last forever. 
Maybe your hope is more personal, it's relational. Maybe you, like so many people, have had fractured and broken relationships and you're, you're really hoping that that person is going to come around and see things your way or you're hoping that that relationship will, will turn around or maybe, maybe you're, you're, you're as of yet single and unmarried and you're hoping for a romantic partner or you're hoping for something in that category, marriage. I don't know where your hopes are. There's probably more. Parents, the hopes that you have for your kids. I hope they make these good choices. I hope they do these activities. I hope they grow up and turn out this certain way. I hope that they go to this college or study this certain thing. Where are your hopes? Friends, let me just tell you this. The hope that Jesus offers is better than any hope. Because one day, like I said, there will be no more United States. There will be no more war in Ukraine. There will be no more inflation there will be no more COVID or cancer or arthritis or diabetes. There will be only Christ and our closeness to him in a new heavens and a new earth with resurrected bodies. That's a good hope. If you're here today and you don't know this hope that Jesus offers, I plead with you. I'll use this word. It might be a little bit unusual for you to hear. I'm encouraging you to despair of all of those other hopes. Abandon ship. The thing you hope for may come true, it may not. But if Jesus Christ raised from the dead, that's a unique thing in all of human history, and I would just challenge you, take all your chips and push them in on the center of the table on Team Jesus. If you are, by God's grace, already a follower of Jesus, praise God. Check your heart. What are you tempted to hope in more than, or, or maybe I should say at a deeper, more foundational level than the hope of the resurrection of Jesus? No politician, no financial recovery, no medical advancement, and yes, no baseball team can offer you any hope that is greater than the hope of Jesus Christ. And so be, before we respond with singing and before we come forward to, like Jesus and those disciples, break bread and drink of the cup, I want to just lead us in a time of prayer. You know, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, before we eat of this bread and drink of the cup, we are to examine ourselves. So I wonder if you wouldn't mind just for a moment closing your eyes. If you want to do something like even just kind of hold your, your hands out in an open posture just to symbolize, Lord, like I want to bring myself to you here. Let's, let's just take a moment in prayer and reflection. Lord, would you, by your Holy Spirit, would you search us? Help us to see what you see more clearly than we do. Lord, where are our hearts tempted to hope? Where are we tempted to place our hope besides the resurrection of the Son of God? Holy Spirit, as you bring conviction, I pray that you would help us to embrace that feeling of conviction. It is a gift from you. Lord, right now we even reject the shame and the condemnation that would want to come from, our, uh, from the enemy or even from our own hearts and minds. That's not your conviction, Lord. Your, 
your kindness is what leads us to repentance. Lord, would you convict us in that kindness? Lord, to show us that you care about us. Lord, to show us that you're concerned for our hearts where we're tempted to hope in, in things that we think we want or we think we need, but Lord, we, we want to trust that you ultimately have what we need. Lord, even now as we prepare to come to the table of the Lord, to eat of the broken body and to drink of the shed blood of Jesus, would you, in, a, in a, just a supernatural way, redirect our hopes, the resurrection of Jesus and the hope of his return and the restoration of all things? Lord, I speak a blessing over Mercy Fellowship. I thank you for this church community. I thank you for our partnership in the gospel. <clears throat> and Lord, would Mercy Fellowship be a place of hope, true hope, in the resurrection of the Son of God, the promise of the new life that he offers. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.